Natalie Nation, and you're listening to Feed That Nation. I'm a graduate student, I'm a future registered dietitian, I'm a health educator, a content creator, and a self-proclaimed mac and cheese expert. I create content here on Feed That Nation all about college life, college health, and college wellness with the goal of helping you, my fellow college students, to be more successful, more confident, and more healthy in your student journey. I upload podcast episodes right here to YouTube and to your favorite podcast listening platforms every Wednesday, and I upload YouTube videos every Saturday. Don't forget to go follow me on Instagram. I am at FeedThatNation, and go check out my blog, FeedThatNation.com. Also, don't forget to go and check out my affiliate partner, Coconut Whisk. Coconut Whisk is a vegan, gluten-free, and allergy-friendly baking mix company based right here in Minnesota. I absolutely love their products. I have been loving their mug cakes lately. They're so much fun. They're such an amazing treat, so easy to make, and they are quite possibly the fluffiest mug cakes I have ever had. Definitely go and check them out. The link is in the description. And if you use my coupon code FeedThatNation, you get 15% off your order and I receive a small commission. So truly everybody wins in this scenario. Go check out Coconut Whisk. Today on Feed That Nation, I have a guest, Pilar, here with me, and she and I are going to have an amazing discussion. I can't wait to talk about this topic. We are going to be talking about DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this is, I think, a topic that within the last year has gotten a lot of buzz, and DEI itself has kind of become its own buzzword, but I wanted to break it down in this episode and talk about what DEI is, and more importantly, what does it mean in the context of college life to college students on college campuses. Before we get into the topic, Pilar, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you, Natalie. I'm so excited to be on your podcast today. Uh, So my name is Pilar. Um, and I am currently a first-year MPH student at UC Berkeley and a future registered dietitian as well. I am very passionate about uh, culturally competent and humble nutrition education, as well as weight-inclusive anti-diet care. Um, that is my that is my life's goal to achieve in the future, and um, that's I'm just very excited to be here today. <laughs> Well, I'm excited that you are here. Before we get into, I guess, the nitty-gritty of this episode, I want to give uh, the privilege statement that I've been giving at the beginning of a lot of my episodes. I want to acknowledge first that neither of us are experts on this topic, and I'm not sure it is possible to truly be an expert on the topic of DEI because everyone's lived experiences are different. That being said, I am white, I am straight presenting, I am cis presenting, I am healthy, and aside from having ADHD, I am just about as privileged as one can be. I definitely reap the benefits of a lot of different types of privilege, and I wanted to acknowledge that because my lens and perspective for this conversation are coming from my lived experiences, and that is not necessarily anyone anyone else's lived experience. Um, Pilar, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, um, I too am, um, I have my privileges, and I am a... um, Latina who um, does benefit from white privileges, white presenting privileges. I am thin, able-bodied, um, cis presenting, and um, have higher have had the privilege of higher education, um, and have grown up in a middle class home. And we will be leaving resources down below, including resources we talk about in this episode for you. If you are curious about learning more about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we will leave those below. And we will also link Pilar below in case you're interested in following her on social media. So 
let's first introduce the topic of DEI. So diversity, equity, and inclusion. I feel like these three words I see a lot of times used as synonyms for one another. And then when they're used together, they're used to kind of represent this big overarching movement. So can you break down a little bit? What is DEI? The difference between all those that those acronyms are so important. So such a great uh, first question to begin with. And ultimately, um, so to break it down, diversity is ultimately relational, but when we tend to speak about diversity, we think about identity pieces and they relate to socialized invisible race, our identities with our gender, our religion, nationalities, body shape. But also it's just increasingly becoming a code for um, those that belong to groups that are, aren't considered dominant um, or those that are historically less uh, or underprivileged um, because of the world that we're socialized. Uh, we have a default that is considered by the, uh, the dominant white narrative. Um, so those that aren't upholding that narrative or um, stray from that proximity to whiteness essentially are considered diverse. So that's important to consider when we talk about diverse and what that means to one another. And then it's important when we talk about diversity and then we move on to the topic of inclusion, you can have a diverse set of people, um, a diverse organization, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an inclusive space. So in terms of inclusion, um, like I said, we have a diverse, we can have a diverse group of people, um, but inclusion and inclusivity isn't necessarily inherently going to be present, um, that actually needs to be designed for. So uh, we need to make sure that although we have all these identities in a space, all of their, the thoughts, opinions, and um, perspectives will be incorporated and embedded into the framework of what, whatever their objectives and goal is as a group. And then when we talk about equity, um, a lot of people confuse equity and equality, and they're two very different things. Um, a lot of us may have grown up with the image of um, a fence uh, and a baseball field and some people peering over a fence. When we define equity and equality, they lead to different results. And basically, if we treat everyone equally, we treat everyone the same. But when we treat everyone equitably, we focus on everyone on an individual level. And that's really important because um, everyone requires different supports in different ways, especially as humans. And in a society where we had systemic oppression, um, we are, our access to different resources um, differ greatly. So that means um, in order to achieve equality, <laughs> we need to achieve equity first. And it takes a lot of dismantling um, and acknowledging of what systems are in place um, for us to achieve equity. Um, the big difference between equity and equality is that with equality, we treat everyone the same, um, but there are still gaps and people that are left in the cracks because of that. And then equity, we focus on individual needs and how to support everyone so everyone eventually gets to a field where we can access the same things. Thank you. So talking about DEI as kind of a, a whole, a concept, when people are talking about improving DEI or supporting DEI work, what is the goal or the purpose of doing this usually? So I'll start off by saying ultimately DEI work is something that 
um, has become increasingly popular, I think due to a lot of guilt <laughs> um, and this urgency of identifying, like we uh, hope to become equitable, we hope to become inclusive um, and we hope to add diversity to our workspaces. From like a, like a corporate America type of way, a lot of it is optics, um, but it does hinder the whole movement of DEI work essentially because nothing, that's where it stops, the optics are there and then nothing is moved forward. No it's dismantling of systemic, um, like the norm that's there, um, that's reliant on oppression is never really dismantled and truly tackled. Um, when the whole point of DEI work is to dismantle systemic oppression is basically for people to say, hey, I am a human and I need to be included and I'm not being. The goal of DEI work is essentially, um, if in true in its true fashion should be to dismantle systemic oppression and um, truly almost to a sense of restore justice um, in spaces where there's injustices being upheld and perpetuated to the benefit of other folks who already have a lot of privilege and have benefited for centuries. Um, and so DEI work essentially hopes to decenter, I guess, whiteness at the end of the day and um, amplify the voices that are continuously erased and oppressed. Um, sadly, a lot of DEI work has now in mainstream conversations have reduced to a lot of virtue signal signaling and a lot of um, optics. So, and that's where performative allyship and performative um, activism has really thrived in these spaces. Um, and so it's important for us to consider what the intent of our activism and allyship, um, where that's truly rooted in. So now that we have a bit of a framework for what exactly DEI work generally is, let's talk a bit more generally about college campuses and college students. And obviously the two of us are college students and we can only speak for our own experiences, but we also do know other college students, we know of other experiences from our own. So let's talk a little bit more broadly about where do a lot of campuses and a lot of students get DEI right? Where are they succeeding in this work and where are the strengths on a lot of campuses? Yeah, and I love the, the quotes, <laughs> how to do it right. Because um, I don't necessarily think there's a, well, there is, there could be a way of doing it wrong. <laughs> like I mentioned, performative. Um, and I personally do think a lot of colleges um, do kind of center very closely to performative um, DEI work. Uh, where I have seen it thrive is, or at least where activism and solidarity really shows up. Um, and of course, you can, it, it would not exist had it not been for a lot of um, strong fighting. I'm going to say that for the lack of a better word. Um, where it really shows up is in like multicultural offices, um, offices for first generation students, uh, LGBTQI plus centers on college campuses. Um, that's where I think a lot of DEI work really shows up and, and is the product of a lot of DEI work that activists and liberationists have fought for for centuries. Um, and it's kind of beautiful to see the product of their work. Um, finally unfold and it's seen in college campuses in that sense. Um, I think also just the individual student groups and the power they hold and yield 
is incredible in DEI work. I think that's where true activism um, has shown up and authentic um, activism truly shows through. I probably would not have been um, at this place in my life and understanding DEI work. Um, I didn't call it DEI work. I think that's the label that's been slapped onto it now, but a lot of the D, what we know as DEI now and I know as DEI would not have come about had it not been for the student organization groups that I um, what inadvertently or intentionally um, engaged with during my time in undergrad and then as a grad student as well. I think that just about sums up my reason for getting my MPH is the incredible involvement I was able to engage with as an undergrad in food justice activism and environmental activism and lots of different spaces where lots of different students are doing incredible work. True. Yeah, I am. Ironically enough, a lot of my food justice knowledge comes from not the classroom per se, but the activist groups on campus that maybe weren't even directly related with like the nutrition department. Um, That's where a lot of my knowledge came from, which is also very telling of how DEI works in academic settings um, within like the faculty curriculums um, or just the department curriculums and what is or isn't spoken about and why, um, and how student groups have basically taken upon themselves to say, hey, you're not learning it in the classroom, we're gonna teach it to ourselves. Um, that's a, it's been a very interesting process of understanding how information is communicated and what type of information is or isn't communicated in the classroom and how that raises us to be competent um, students and future providers as well. So I often think about like, the campuses that don't have activist groups, um, how they're really, I'm not gonna say a disservice, but how these students are missing such a quality piece of their education that takes part outside of the classroom because they're not existent on their campus. Absolutely. So before we get into talking about the weaknesses of DEI work on college campuses and where more work needs to be done, Let's talk about performative allyship and performative activism, because you've used these words before, and I think these are two other kind of buzzwords that have popped up in the last year or so with, let's let's be real, with George Floyd's murder, and as we're um, doing this interview, Derek Chauvin's trial is going on in Minneapolis right now, so this is incredibly relevant and present in my life personally as a resident of the Minneapolis area, but also as a college student, as someone involved in public health work. So let's talk about, I definitely didn't ask you the question yet. Let's talk about what is performative allyship or performative activism? And if you could give some examples of like, what might this look like on a college campus? I think everyone at some point engages in performative allyship or activism. Honestly, I would have to say without some folks performative allyship or activism, I probably wouldn't be exposed to a lot of the things, um, a lot of issues and topics. Um, So at the end of the day, I I think we have to engage in performative actions at times in order to truly even get acknowledgement of what's out there and what we're fighting for. Because some of us are close to the issues and some of us aren't. And social media has been a great way for disseminating things that we would have never been able to have um, an understanding about because it's not close to home or our communities. That being said, um, so performative allyship and activism, 
basically doesn't engage with issues on a very complex level. It doesn't get to the nitty gritty, the uncomfortable conversations. Um, it's very comfortable. It's very easy. Um, it's very centering of fragility. <laughs> um, and it makes very tough conversations um, simplistic for the sake of uh, other people's comfort. Like, sorry, I kind of went around saying that, but basically performing a allyship is, does nothing to dismantle. It does nothing to truly show up um, or be anti-racist essentially. It doesn't call things out. Um, it, it maintains the status quo and basically considers anything else um, any attempt to change processes that support um, structural oppression and racism, um, it just renders it useless, basically. Being consciously authentic about um, the way that we are showing up as allies and um, in our activism means that we have to basically move away from the performative nature. And it starts with us and it starts with us doing the hard work within ourselves. Um, and I think that's something a lot, what a lot of people do is symbolize uh, learning how to play a guitar. We talk about, I think this is the, the analogy, but just stick with me here. So we always talk about wanting to play the, the guitar. It sounds great. Um, it's, it's something that we've always wanted to learn how to play. And we just keep talking about it, but we never actually attempt it. And then we try to play the guitar. A few of us actually go ahead and play the guitar and go through the struggles of learning how to do it. And it's deeply uncomfortable. Um, and then very few of us even move forward to, to perfect the technique. And I'm not trying to say activism or allyship can be perfected, but it takes work. It takes discomfort. Um, it takes also dismantling and calling yourself out and how you perpetuate harm. Um, and so performative allyship strays away from doing any of that. It looks like um, putting a black tile on your Instagram. And that's the extent. And it, it can look like just reposting things, but at the same time, um, it's really contextual allyship and activism. And it's really important as to what the intention is for reposting it. Um, and if you're moving forward from reposting and actually showing up in spaces, but that also means that these spaces have to be open and safe for some of us to to speak up and move past the reposting you know so um it looks different to everyone but ultimately act, uh, performative activism and allyship is only what you click on a button and you don't move forward from there <laughs> yeah yeah i think you touched on some really incredible points and i love that you brought up the black tile on instagram and the performative aspect on social media or even in real life where it's all about the aesthetics of activism without the actual actions. And I think I see this on college campuses where they'll have like pictures in their catalogs of you know students sitting on the quad and it'll be like a black student, a white student, a student in a wheelchair and a student in a hijab or whatever. But then where is the actual action in making sure that all of these students have access all over campus and are in every classroom and, you know, doing the work on the back end in admissions and hiring and recruiting. But of course you can have the picture on the catalog and there you go. Yeah. Um, I also recently had a conversation with someone about um, land acknowledgements are pretty big um, in Berkeley right now. And I'm not sure if Natalie, your school does land acknowledgements, but 
it's it's something that I never heard about. And this is one of the great examples of performative allyship that can be a benefit, but it can also hinder. Um, so are you aware of what a land acknowledgement is? Okay, <laughs> I just learned about it like this year. So I'm stoked to educate people on it, but since we know. Um, so a lot of conversation about land acknowledgements being performative in the sense that I, especially in an academic setting, the people who we are acknowledging, um, one, aren't ever really in these spaces. They're not granted acceptance or admission into these spaces where we're giving acknowledgement to their community that has been harmed and oppressed for years um, and continues to. And um, second of all, the acknowledgement does nothing. It just states we're on occupied land, um, but the school itself hasn't done anything to improve efforts to give the land back. So in, in, at the end of the day, who is this acknowledgement really for? Is it for our guilt or is it for the community that has been harmed? Um, do I think that there is value in people being acknowledged for the harm, for the harm that's been done onto them? Absolutely. So I think there is warranted effort for these acknowledgements, but I do think that there's a lot more harm in saying, hey, we did something bad and then nothing else coming up off from it. So that's, I think it's a great example of one of those performative allyship and activism uh, products that have personally for me, given me insight on something I wasn't aware of, but I've also done nothing to move forward in the Atlantic, past Atlantic acknowledgement personally. Yeah, and just to clarify for people listening who don't know what a land acknowledgement is, my understanding is when a place like a college acknowledges that before the college was built, before the city was founded, the land was occupied by indigenous peoples or a specific tribe of indigenous people. That's my understanding as well. Okay, just wanted to make sure that my listeners also know what we're talking about because I had never thought of it that way where we acknowledge that, you know, the University of Minnesota and Berkeley too, and probably most colleges all over the country were built on land that was formerly occupied by indigenous people. And that land was in a lot of ways stolen or in pretty much every way stolen, manipulated, threatened, and all of that is really traumatic and scary. And yeah, you can acknowledge that the school was built on indigenous people's land, but if you don't have any indigenous people attending your school, if there are no efforts to provide scholarships, if there are no efforts to recruit and support indigenous students, then what's the point? Right, and and that's going into diversity, um, equity and inclusion work too. Um, I think that's an effort, like a step forward in terms of diversity, maybe inclusion, um, because now those perspectives are in those spaces. But um, in terms of equity, I don't, that doesn't really touch in, on to the equity aspect. So in thinking about, now that we know what performative activism is, performative allyship, we've talked about DEI, we've talked about what college campuses and students are getting right. And I would love to acknowledge a couple of, I guess, more specific examples of where a lot of colleges are failing their students and failing in terms of supporting and advocating for and funding DEI work. And I think a huge example of this that especially has come to light in the last year or so is a lot of colleges are 
exploiting is probably the best word I can say, exploiting the free labor of their students and faculty and staff of color, their students and faculty and staff who have disabilities, who identify with the LGBTQ plus community, who are on the neurodiversity spectrum, and they kind of exploit the free labor and the images and the words and experiences of these students and faculty and staff to push these movements forward, either in actuality or performatively. There wasn't really a question in there. That's just something I feel really passionate about, but. I completely agree with you. Um, I A lot of the brunt of the work has now been put on these folks and compensation is huge and we're not seeing compensation. Um, and I, this is super funny too. Again, it, I've written as, I think these last, the last year and a half maybe, um, I just came to understand how people have been saying these things, um, especially marginalized folks have been saying, I need compensation for the work that I'm providing. And so as someone in the last year and a half who has done a lot of work in terms of in- acknowledging my like own internalized um, white supremacy, my own internalized racism, you start to realize that the folks around you that um, you considered really radical, but in a in a bad sense, in a sense of like, oh, why are they causing a scene right now? Like, just take what you get. I used to think that way, right? And it's deeply uncomfortable to also acknowledge that, like, (laughs) um, but these folks have been saying for years, I need compensation for the work that I'm doing. And a lot of us don't understand the, the severity of a simple ask of being compensated for the work that they're doing. Because when it takes a lot of trauma to talk about this, it's not fun. It's not fun to be told, like to tell people why you struggle so hard and see very little be done after the fact to reduce that trauma or reduce that trauma from happening to others. I used to see a lot of Latina speakers. Um, There's one, her name is Prisca Dolas. I think that's her name, Prisca Dorcas. And I remember watching her Instagram and she make a whole series about don't ever speak at a conference or at a school without being compensated. Um, You deserve more than that. And I could not for the life of me understand (laughs) why is she asking for more? Like they're giving her money. Um, And it wasn't until this year where I finally realized like, absolutely not. This school was not compensating her for her work. And they simply said, it's compensation enough to have your voice heard at this school. Yes, there is something to say about social capital. Um, Social capital is very much a thing. Um, Is it enough for compensation for people of color and people of marginalized identities? Absolutely not. Um, And I think we're moving towards this understanding, hopefully in the future, that if we're going to ask people to talk about being marginalized, you get properly compensated for it. Um, It's the closest thing to reparations we'll get (laughs) for some Absolutely. And I love that you brought up compensation. And that's sort of what I was getting at is when a Black faculty member is asked if they will participate on a committee or if a Black student is asked if they'll speak at a panel, like, especially when it's talking about trauma related to being Black, like, that's a traumatic experience. But also, no matter who you are, if you're giving time and effort to something because you've been asked, like, I have a whole podcast episode talking about this, and I can't believe I didn't really address race and 
privilege is part of that, but you are the expert. Like they're asking you to speak on this panel or participate in this committee because you are the expert. And because you are the expert, even if you're a freshman in college or you're a tenured faculty member, you deserve compensation for that. This this mindset of you deserve compensation. Um, I mean, growing up, I didn't hear about compensation for your work and your labor until recently too. So I'm also thinking about all the times many of us growing up had to show up for ourselves, but also, I mean, we're, when we're asked to talk about being marginalized, you, you're not a, you're not a monolith. Like you're also not the face of (laughs) whatever XYZ marginalized identity they have um, categorized you under and as that you also identify with. Um, Had it not been for, you know, those, um, really radical folks who will radical in the notion of like how we've defined radical at this point I'm just these are folks who were saying things that needed to be said and were um, villainized for doing so and slap on the name radical for it um but for those radical folks who really brought up these ideas of compensation um I, I still would have thought that it would have been completely normal for us to talk about our traumas and not be compensated in some way or form and that simply being heard was enough. Like, I, I'm really, really um, thankful for all the, the work that people have sim- to just simply say, you deserve to be paid. It shouldn't be that radical of a concept. And it was for me for such a long amount of time. And now that these people are making a, a statement about you know, we live under capitalism and if capitalism, if you're going to be exploited by capitalism, you better reap the, the rewards for it. Um, and so that's truly, and it's also understanding that you have something to say and what you have to say is worth being listened to and compensated for is, is a whole sort of emotional, interpersonal work that needs to be done that's super difficult and uncomfortable to acknowledge. In terms of DEI work, we focus a lot on racial justice and racial injustice. And this is obviously a huge, huge area where there are so many ways we can do better. We as a society, we as individuals, we as a college community, all of that. But I also wanted to acknowledge other aspects of diversity. And I touched on this a little bit when we're talking about gender diversity and sexuality diversity and disability and all of those experiences because Sometimes it feels like DEI work is only about race. And really, when we bring all of these groups of people to the table, when we all are talking about how half the power-assisted automatic doors on campus don't work, you know, that doesn't just hurt people who have trouble opening doors. That hurts people carrying boxes that, or, you know, when there are only men's and women's bathrooms, that, that doesn't just hurt people who don't identify as a man or a woman. That hurts moms with little kids or parents who have disabled children and need more space in a bathroom. And so there wasn't even a question in there, but I kind of wanted to bring in these aspects of of diversity and kind of just get your take. Yeah, I absolutely love that you talk about this because when we talk about diversity specifically, um, it just becomes a form of uh, integration for identity politics where um where representation is all we rely on and that's where I think diversity and um representation are kind of synonymous at some point um 
and it does nothing at the end of the day. Someone was, I read on Twitter and I kind of had to like stare at it for a little bit because I was so deeply uncomfortable with it. Um, Because I grew up my entire life saying, keep going up to like, keep going up in in academia. Like you're going to, you're Latina, like you're the only Latina in this space. And you grow up just wanting to be represented your entire life. But also, I mean, for me, I was sure I was adding to diversity um, and questionable as white presenting Latina. Um, You grow up thinking representation is the biggest tool to to moving our communities forward, but you can have diversity, but you can't have, doesn't inherently mean that you're going to have inclusion. And that's what you would have seen with me had I not been awoken to like a lot of the issues and forms of oppression that I even um, uh, imposed. And when you, all you want is representation, you don't care about what comes along with the representation, which could mean continuation of oppression. Um, And so when we talk about DEI work, and like you mentioned, all we stick is to race. At the end of the day, representation doesn't move us forward if whoever is representing is, safeguarding and basically still gatekeeping, not dismantling. Um, And I know a lot of us in terms of, I don't know if you want us to go political. We can go political. So in terms of like Kamala Harris, um, that's where a lot of like representation politics and conversation about representation politics comes into play. I do also want to preface that a lot of the work and my understanding of DEI would not have I would not have known about had it not been for like um, Erica Hart, uh, for like activists such as like Erica Hart, um, the podcast Brown Bitter Femmes. Um, had it not been for those activists that I currently follow, I would not have known about this. So I do want to give acknowledgement to their work and how that's come forth in my understanding today. But um, Erica Hart and the episode, um, I don't know the episode right now. If you think of it later, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, They do a great job of understanding how uh, we've kind of settled in terms of our DEI work of just representation where, for example, Biden and Harris, like, um, especially when we talk about Kamala Harris as the first South Asian and Black woman to be vice president, representation, representation, representation. And to a point, yes, there's going to be millions of Black and South Asian um, and girls who are inspired by this and think if she can be up there, I can be up there. I can do that. I can do hard things and be in, you know, break the glass ceiling and all that. But with Harris, we also see um, neoliberalism. We also still see safeguarding of the prison industrial system. We still see well, I'll go back to neoliberalism, which at the end of the day does nothing to really dismantle oppression. And that's where representation politics really hinders any progression to move forward. And I know that still sticks to race, but when we also talk about, um, I like to talk about nutrition and dietetics too, but in a lot of the DEI work that I see in the nutrition space outside of diversified dietetics, and it's an attempt, I see that organizations are trying to make an attempt at DEI work but it still only relies on representation rhetoric. And there's not, rarely do you hear about like uh, neurodivergence 
in nutrition education, as well as I'm something that I'm very passionate about, which is health equity and how like that isn't necessarily represented in a lot of what we talk about for um, fat communities. I think that's where the lapse and and true evidence of I'm not going to the beginning of DEI work and how much we still have to go forward in terms of our conversations of DEI. Um, it needs to move past just do we see Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color seen in the field, but also able-bodiedness and our recommendations, lack of consideration of uh, socioeconomic status. We, in the way that we talk about in our classrooms, sometimes the discussions about socioeconomic status and food insecurity and how that's influencing food decisions really lacks luster and isn't as multidimensional and nuanced as it ought to be for a, for a field that's dependent or even likes to display the idea that they are proponents of food justice. I don't think we're doing enough work. You brought up a lot of really great points about body diversity. And I mean, I can always bring up the fact that like I learned about Latin food and African food and Asian food as like a couple of days of a portion of one of my nutrition classes, that's a huge issue. And then we talk about weight management and weight-centered like nutrition counseling, and all of that is incredibly problematic because we're basically saying that people who aren't in straight-sized or thin bodies don't belong. And that's another part of diversity, equity, and inclusion is all body sizes, all body types. In terms of the fact that DEI work isn't just like who is in the room, but also what is in the curriculum and what we're learning. Um, that's an aspect of DEI work that I think is, I think we're starting to get to. But that also means that those in power that are creating the curriculum having who have the dominant narrative have to withhold a lot of their power to change and also acknowledgement of the perpetuation of harm that they were causing initially in order to truly get at the the nitty-gritty part of DEI work. So let's talk about, we touched on this a little bit earlier, social media and DEI work. And we talked about performative allyship and activism, but, and you even acknowledge that in some ways performative activism and performative allyship can be positive, but can you talk a little bit more about other positives that you see to social media and DEI work? So the biggest positive I have to say is that they are conversation starters. Absolutely. Sometimes it's a conversation that should have happened yesterday. <laughs> um, so for some of us, um, we are playing catch up and for others, we're just kind of waiting. Um, and those that are waiting shouldn't be left waiting any longer. But that's not to say that this um, social media and DEI work hasn't really, I think has caused great stretches in conversations that probably wouldn't have happened had it not been a decade or even two decades ago. So I think a lot of our DEI work and conversations around DEI, we, we owe a lot to social media. Um, I think a lot of folks who have been talking about DEI work for a long time now have now been given platforms where they can talk and communicate their ideas to larger audiences. Um, I'm learning about DEI work within the Latinx community that I never knew about had I not been um, exposed to it from other accounts. And I mean, that's a huge part about um, allyship too, um, which I've heard a lot about in social media, which is decentering yourself and, and passing the mic. Had it not been for a lot of folks who are passing the mic and 
and we're going to have known about a lot of Latinx activists um, and the work on DEI and anti-racist efforts that are happening in Latin America. Social media has done wonders in terms of giving people voices. Um, there also is a negative to that and the harm that is caused by amplifying voices and the inevitable harm that comes from trolls and people who have no intention in actually doing the work, but just just hindering their their message because it it um, threatens their the privilege that they hold and it threatens the displacement of the privilege that they have. Um, and for some folks, they don't want to relinquish that power. Um, white supremacy thrives in various forms, um, and so social media has done a great job of also teaching us how to step up. I think in conversations. Um, as well as how not to step or how to step down from conversations, as well as uh, how to approach certain situations. I can, from a dietetic point of view, especially within the body liberation movement, I have learned a lot in terms of how to show up as an ally and how to step down and how to displace or decenter myself in certain places um, and conversations about body liberation. And I wouldn't have gotten to know about that had it not been for social media. I think a big thing about social act, um, DEI work on social media is also understanding that um, when you're confronted with information that one you didn't know before, you have to be able to, I'm not going to say receive it right away, but also sit with it and the discomfort of it and hopefully receive it and, and you know, adapt it to your new sense of understanding of the world. But social media, DEI work and social media makes a lot of people uncomfortable and angry. And I think a lot of us are learning how to sit with the discomfort now, um, which has been a benefit that a lot of us might not acknowledge as a benefit in the moment. But I, for one, have been deeply uncomfortable by a lot of the stuff that I've um, encountered in terms of equity work that uh, content creators have put forth on social media um, and now have truly benefited in my understanding of what DEI looks like because of their, their content. I absolutely love some of the positives of DEI work and social media and DEI work because something I've been trying to think about a lot more in the last year or so is that you know, I'm learning about racism, I'm learning about ableism, I'm learning about thin privilege and all of these things, and I should be learning about them from the people who have those lived experiences. Like, me reading about racism as told by a white person is not, I mean, all words have value, all people's experiences have value, but I should be learning about racism from people who are black, indigenous, and people of color. I should be learning about ableism from people with disabilities. And so I think social media allows a lot of people to actually hear from people in those communities who hold those identities. I mean, there are tons of really incredible dietitians out there. I think dietitian Anna is one of my favorite people to follow when I'm t learning about, you know, disability and ableism. And I love uh, Dua. I think she's at a Muslim dietitian who talks about nutrition from the lens of someone who practices Islam. And like literally all these things are things I never would have considered or thought about before. And I love social media for introducing me to these people and allowing me to learn from them. Social media just shows you the nuances and, and intersectionality of every, 
of being human um, that we don't experience all the time. And we don't, we definitely don't talk about it in, in academic settings. Um, so from a student perspective, um, social media can be like school 2.0 sometimes. Definitely. <laughs> and I agree, dietitian, um, dietitian Anna, she, I would not have acknowledged that that lens had it not been for their their narrative. So before we wrap up, I would love to hear your thoughts about the importance of self-care when it comes to DEI work. And obviously all college students can benefit from self-care. Everyone can benefit from self-care, but I think especially for students who hold marginalized identities, you know, whether they're a BIPOC student, LGBTQ, have a disability or any combination of those things, self-care becomes even more important because not only is the advocacy important, but whether you want to or not, you're facing the trauma from holding that identity. And not necessarily that the identity causes the trauma, but white supremacy has caused the trauma because of the identity. You know what I mean. So I would love to hear you talk about self-care in that way. Oh gosh. I wish I had a proper answer because I'm still learning how to engage in self-care. Um, in this work. I've recently heard someone say like being being anti-racist is a form of community and self-care. Um, and so self-care doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be feeling rested or comfortable the entire time. Um, self-care is facing those really ugly parts that are brought up in DEI work um, and deeply uncomfortable parts, especially when you have to start acknowledging your own, um, the own, the, the harm you perpetuated onto others. Um, I think when I think of self-care and DEI work, it's, it's really just engaging in that hard work and feeling uncomfortable. If you're not, if you're comfortable, I think you have more work to do. <laughs> and so there's that, but then there's also, and a, a friend of mine and I were talking about this earlier today, rest. You, you you have to rest, um, which is something I'm not good at acknowledging for myself, but also extending that compassion to others um, and allowing the room for rest to occur is so important. Um, the, the expression of you have to fill your cup before you fill anyone else's cup is super, super relevant in this because the work can only move as far as you move. Um, and that also includes if you're so exhausted, you can't move any forward, any way forward to intentionally and effectively communicate. There's no, there's, you're expending energy and time. You have to fill your cup up before you fill anyone else's. Otherwise, your, your, your exhaust and what comes out of your exhaustion won't be as intentional or effective for people in the long run. Um, you have to fill people's cup from your overfill which is super, super easier said. It's way more easier said than done. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and sharing your thoughts on this topic. And we will definitely be linking any resources we mentioned down below, as well as a couple more that I've come across that I've found to be really valuable in learning about this work. And just a friendly reminder again, that there is really no perfect answer when it comes to DEI work. And a lot of the answers for DEI work come from lived experiences and identities, which are always going to be unique. Before we go, or before I let you go, I, every week, give my audience my food, my follow, and my fun. 
And so I'm going to turn it over to you. If you could please give my audience a food that you've been loving this week, someone you've been following on social media who's been really uplifting and something fun that you've been doing this week. So food, I had amazing Burmese food last night. Um, So Burmese eggplant and garlic sauce is really great. Um, My follow is the food fighting fam. Um, They are amazing. And something fun is, maybe this means I need to do something fun this week because I haven't (laughs) the faintest idea. Probably walking my my pandemic puppy. His name's Theo, and he is a joy. <laughs> I love that. I love that people are finding so much joy in, like, all the little things. Like, a puppy is kind of a big thing. But, like, people are saying, oh, I went for a walk and I saw a pretty bird. Or people are saying, oh, I just, like, made a really good dinner last night and it was just awesome. And I'm like, yes, let's find the joy, even when life sucks. Like, let's keep finding joy. I think that's that's another thing to add to our tool for self-care, finding joy in the small things. So if you like this episode, please go ahead and throw a comment down if you're watching on YouTube. Give us a five-star review and a rating if you're listening on a podcast platform. We would absolutely love to hear from you. I will leave Pilar's information down below if you want to go follow her on social media. She is such an outspoken advocate for nutrition and public health, especially when it relates to body liberation and food equity and food justice. And I, I mean, following you on social media is what prompted me to ask you to be on this podcast. So I think social media plays so many great roles in DEI work. I hope that you all have a fantastic week. Don't forget to go follow me on Instagram. I am at Feed That Nation and go check out my blog, feedthatnation.com. Until next time, my name is Natalie Nation. You're listening to Feed That Nation and I'll see you soon.